I fell into the hands of a corrupt detective. I was naive enough to believe that I would be able to just present all of my proof of actual innocence, that they would investigate adequately, and so that I wouldn't be going to prison because I was a good person, I hadn't done anything wrong. In the back of your mind, you say, well, when we go to a hearing or we go to court, the truth will come out. The prosecution from day one knew I was innocent and let false testimony go uncorrected from the lower courts all the way up to the United States Supreme Court. You have someone with a badge with ultimate and, and really, in that moment, unchecked authority. Don't presume that people are guilty when you see them on TV because it may just be a dirty DA that is trying to rise upward. This is Wrongful Conviction. Hello, this is a prepaid call from... Dusty. An inmate at the Virginia Department of Corrections, Greensville Correctional and Work Center. To accept this call, press zero. To refuse this this call is from a collection facility and is subject to monitoring and recording. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom. Today I'm interviewing someone who I have a great deal of respect and admiration for, Dusty Turner. On June 19th, the 21-year-old pre-med student went missing while vacationing with family friends at Virginia Beach. 21-year-old Jennifer Evans, abducted and murdered while vacationing in Virginia Beach. That Sunday night, Jennifer Evans left the now-defunct Bayou nightclub with former Navy SEAL trainee Dustin Turner. Police say the two got in the car with another SEAL trainee, Billy Joe Brown. Police found her body nine days later in this wooded area of Newport News. She had been strangled. Both men blamed each other in court. Turner was sentenced to 82 years and Brown to 72 years. Both sentenced to spend the rest of their lives in prison, but the appeals continued through this year when Brown told police he was solely responsible for Jennifer's death. The confession gave Dustin Turner one last chance to walk free. The Virginia Supreme Court ruled unanimously Friday against Dusty Turner's petition for exoneration. The ruling means Turner and another SEAL trainee, Billy Joe Brown, will spend the rest of their lives in prison for the murder of Jennifer Evans. Dusty, welcome to the show. Thank you. The reason you're hearing him sound sort of like he's on another planet is because he is. He's in prison in Virginia where he's been locked up for 22 years for a crime he had nothing to do with. It's a complicated case and a very tragic situation because Dusty had just completed the training to be a Navy SEAL when he was arrested for a murder that he didn't commit. And Dusty, let's go back to that. When did you sign up for the Navy? What made you want to serve your country? Well, my, uh, my family has been in the military. My father, my stepfather, my, my brother, my older brother, he was in the Navy before me. And I, I guess I just have always had that appeal towards the military and to, to uh, serve my country. Right, but you took it to another level going through that Navy SEAL training. That is the most extreme thing you can do, right? SEALs and Rangers are the most elite troops that we have. And so you decided to subject yourself to basically torture in order to really become a machine, right? <laughs> well, yeah, I guess that's right. You know, initially when I first signed up for the military, the Navy, I wanted to be a diver. I was uh, scuba diving since I was 15 years old. And before, I was in a, what's called a delayed entry program. 
And so before I actually arrived at boot camp, I had set my sights on becoming a uh, steel. I don't know really what, what it is that drove me so much, but I just wanted to be in the most uh, elite unit that I could, uh, could be in order to uh, fight for my country. And ironically, this all went horribly wrong. And there's a connection, there's a very strong connection to the training because of the fact that it was that fateful night when you were out with your training buddy when all of this tragedy began. Your training partner was Billy Brown, right? Yes. Billy Brown and I were paired together early on in, in Bud's training. And throughout the entire field training, we were paired up. And actually, the only reason we were paired up at the beginning is because we were the same height. And as fate would have it, that's why we were paired up. And why does that matter? Well, the <laughs> everyone's assigned to a boat crew in Bud's training, and your boat crew is dependent upon height. And so we were in the same boat crew. We were the same height. One instructor said, you and you, you're together. You're now swim buddies. And that was early in, in training. And the issue was, Billy was a very volatile character, right? There's questions that have been raised as to whether he should have ever been admitted into the Navy in the first place when he had a history of, well, let's just say erratic behavior that would be concerning, you would think, before allowing him in to serve in that capacity. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I didn't know about his past until after the trial. He did have a uh, violent history Apparently, he had um, assaulted at least one female before he came to the military. He was discharged out of the Coast Guard before he came into the into the Navy. And he had a couple other things on his record, which, again, I was unaware of prior. You know, there's, there's some people have said that when he would have gone through the process to get his security clearance, that they would have recognized this and then kicked him out of the service. I'm not so sure if that's the case or not. But he certainly had this violent past, and it is surprising. You know, in hindsight, it's very surprising that he was allowed not only in the military, but to uh, come through into the Special Forces. And, Dusty, so going through the training with him, I mean, you guys are taught to protect each other at all costs, even if it means risking or putting your own life in danger. Is that right? Yes, it is. During the training throughout a good majority of it. If we were separated more than six feet, we would be punished for that. You know, it, we, I could uh, trust him in the field, so to speak, to uh, shoot over top of my back and you know, pack my parachute, so to speak. Um, so there was a great deal of uh, trust and a binding force, I guess, that comes with the uh, training. Right, you literally had to trust each other with your lives in a very, very, in a very real way. I'm bringing that up because... It has a bearing on the events, the tragic events that happened on June 19, 1995 in Virginia Beach. And I don't think anybody who hasn't been in your shoes can judge how you acted on that particular night. It's a very unique case and a very unique set of circumstances. Let's talk about that because you guys went out to a bar that night. The, the evening started innocently enough. But Billy had a, a drinking problem, from what I've read, and apparently he got pretty blitzed. Is that right? Yeah, he had been drinking that day from early on, and it just continued into the evening until we were at the club that night, and he was uh, yeah, absolutely blitzed. 
So walk us through what happened, Dusty, because this is really the moment, right, when your life was turned upside down. How did this unravel from the time you were in the club to when you ended up in the car and then ultimately what happened after that? Well, you know, it started off as kind of a normal normal evening. I'd been to that club a few times previous. I was relatively new to the area in Virginia Beach. I'd only been there maybe maybe three weeks. And so initially three of us guys were going to go out to the club that night. One of the guys ended up uh, going, I don't know, going off with his girlfriend or something. So Billy and I went to the club. It was, again, it was kind of normal. Here, Billy is drunk again. I kind of separated myself from the club from him. And uh, I had met a very nice young lady named Jennifer Evans. We kind of hit it off. We were having a good time. We were sharing with each other about what we, what we were into. You know, she was a college student down in Georgia. And I generally didn't talk very openly about my field experience. But with her, I did. And I opened up and I told her what I was doing there in Virginia Beach. Now, mind you that I was in the club with a um, underage. And I had a fake ID that I got in there. You were 20 at the time, right? I was, yeah, I was 20 years old. Jennifer was 21. And so, again, we, you know, Jennifer and I, we hit it off. We had uh, separated ourselves from, from Billy. I had met her girlfriend, her two friends that she came there with. We had been out on the dance floor. And, uh, you know, it, again, it was, it was a very, very normal type of evening at the club. The last thing I would imagine was something tragic happening that night. So it was toward the end of the night. Her girlfriend had left briefly. They were going to go get some coffee. Jennifer wanted to stay with me in the club. So we actually had an idea of trying to go down to the beach, taking our shoes off and walking down on the beach. But as the night progressed and her girlfriends were going to come pick her back up at 2 o'clock in the morning, which is the time the club closed, Jennifer and I realized we didn't know it was time to go down to the beach and then make it back to meet her girlfriend. So we stayed in the club. And in fact, we went out into the lobby where it was more quiet. And we just sat out there and had a conversation. Just previous to this, I had gotten Billy a ride home with his ex-girlfriend who happened to be in the club that night, Kristen Bishop. And reluctantly, she did agree to take him home. She was reluctant and hesitant because she knows the type of character that he is. And she really didn't want to deal with him, especially because he was so drunk, which I understood. But, you know, I was happy that she was willing to take him home. So I was confident that I wouldn't even see him for the rest of the night. And I was with Jennifer. And it was closing upon o'clock in the morning we were out in the lobby and uh we decided to go out in the parking lot to wait for her girlfriend and sit in my car and listen to some music and so within about 10 minutes till two again we went out to my car and we were sitting there listening to music and looking for her girlfriend to show up at any minute instead what we saw coming down the hill was billy brown and he was heading towards the parking lot you know i, I certainly wasn't expecting him Christian was supposed to take him home. I knew he was drunk and belligerent. So when he was approaching the vehicle, I told Jennifer, I said, look, you know, this is the guy I come here with. You know, he's drunk. Just just don't pay no attention to him. I've seen him in the past, especially when we were in Puerto Rico. I've seen him, witnessed him become kind of violent towards women. I didn't think that he would become violent towards Jennifer, but I did assume he was at least going to be obnoxious and, and somewhat belligerent. So when he got into the car... Wait, hold up there for a second, Dusty. What kind of car was it? 
So I had a, a small Geostorm. So that's a small car, right? Yeah, it, it is a very small car. And you're big guys. You Both of you guys are... are... He was bigger than I. We were both six foot two and a half, I guess, and he outweighed me by maybe maybe 15 to 20 pounds. So he was, I think he was about 230, somewhere around, about 230 pounds. But he approaches the uh, passenger side of the car, and he opens the door, and he kind of pushes the uh, car seat forward where Jennifer was sitting. He pushes her seat forward a little roughly, and he gets in the car in the back seat right behind her. And of course, his big frame can barely fit back in this, like you did a very small car. So his knees are against the back of, the, of her seat. And as soon as he sits down, I turn to him and I say, Billy, what, what's going on? Why, why, why is Kristen not taking you home? And he uh, immediately goes into a uh, tirade about, oh, screw that, F that girl, she thinks, you know, blah, blah. She's uh, nothing but a this or that. This is the last thing you want to see, right? You're having a nice moment with a girl. You have a nice connection with her. The last thing you want to see, last thing anybody would want to see, is a drunk, belligerent, violent. Any do you? You don't want to see anybody at that point, right? You just want to be in your little bubble with her, listen to music. Everything's good. I mean, you never could have predicted how bad it was going to get, but already it's bad. Yeah. So this is obviously this is the uh, the crux of the, of the situation. Jennifer and I were having a good time. You know, we were not romantically involved at this time. Earlier, I had given her a hug when I thought that she was going to leave with her girlfriend. And that's the only time we had uh, had any kind of physical contact. I should say Jennifer was a, she was a very decent young lady. You know, she was a good girl with a great future in front of her. She was going to college. And it's a very nice young lady. And so we were having a great conversation. And as you said, here comes this drunk buddy of mine out of the car. So he's now in the back seat and is acting as you would have probably predicted that he would have acted because of what you know about his character and his current state of mind. But then it gets much worse. Yeah, yeah. So after asking him why Christian was taking him home, and, you know, he said what he said about her, and he, he turned his attention to Jennifer. And uh, he made some very rude comment. Uh, if I remember correctly, he said something about asking her if she was a virgin something like that. It was certainly uh, inappropriate, and I, and I immediately said, look, Billy, why don't you get out and go find Christian? She she was going to take you home. And so he was not trying to hear that at all. He's like, F that bitch. So, again, he kind of turns his attention to Jennifer. Now, mind you, within two or three or four minutes before her girlfriends are coming to pick her up, right there where we're at, uh, in the parking lot, they're supposed to arrive there. They told us to be there at two o'clock. And it, it has to be within a couple minutes before two. And of course, I didn't know at that point, too, what had transpired in the club between him and Kristen that made him additionally belligerent. So he turns his attention back to Jennifer, and he uh, said something about her hair. He reached up with his right hand. I don't know if he touched her, her shoulder or her hair, but at that point, Jennifer had been throughout this time, this, this brief couple minutes, she had not said a word, she had not opened her mouth to him or, or replied to him. And so when he touched her hair or her shoulder, she smacked his hand from behind, you know, swatted at his hand, and that's when he snapped. So you know, I wasn't looking directly at him when he snapped, but with all his might, 
he violently thrust his arms around her upper body, her neck area, and with so much force that the whole car literally shaked. Right, and, and I'm thinking about it, Dusty. He had his feet, as you said, his knees were up against the seat. And here's a big, strong, 220, 30-pound guy who's trained to kill with his with his hands, and he's got total leverage, right? Because he's got the, the knees. I mean, you know, it would have been nothing for him to do this, considering all of those well, factors. Well, you know, I don't... You know, I don't know about saying it would have been nothing. I really don't know. I know that it seemingly it was nothing for him. This strike that he he did upon this innocent young woman was so violent that when I turned and started screaming at him to just let her go, and he's screaming at me, just up and drive, just up and drive. First, I start crying and I try to pull his arms off of her and screaming at him. This entire brief time when this happened, Jennifer never once reached up to defend herself. It was that quick that she was out. And so I immediately grab at his arms, and I'm screaming at him, just let her go, let her go. And he's screaming at me, just fucking drive, just up and drive. You know, only after a couple seconds at pulling at his arms, it didn't work. So I reached under his fingers, literally, and pried his arms, using one hand on his elbow and the other under his fingertips and pried his arms up off of her. At this point, when I did get his arms off her, he took back in the seat, and she is out. She's dead. Her head is, is tilted towards the passenger side window. Her arms are at her side. She avoided herself, and I'm just in complete shock and just utter confusion and disbelief. And I and I'm and still he is yelling at me just. Epping drive, just epping drive. Dusty, I'm just thinking, I'm just the, the physics of it, I mean, it would have been almost impossible for anyone, even a strong guy like yourself, to pull somebody off from the side when he's in a position like he was in, especially when it happened as quickly as it did. I mean, you really had no chance to save this poor girl. And I, I mean, I, obviously you did what you could, but she had no chance. And, and at this point, were you concerned that he was going to try to kill you too? No, it certainly wasn't my... It didn't go through my head at the time, no. My only thought, and I think that anyone sitting in, in my seat would have had the same reaction. You know, one minute, I'm having a good time with a young lady, and the next minute, this guy, this violent predator, completely just alters history. I know it's a little extreme, but I mean, he is, if it, the one act that he does, it changes the lives of so many people. Sure. One act, and he's drunk, and, he, and, you know, I'd like to think that he really didn't know what the heck he's doing. He has his past, and he has not only the past of, his, of violence towards women, but he's been increasingly becoming an alcoholic over the last several weeks or months, in which he's drinking every single night. It's just a bad, bad brew, not, not to mention the fact that he was taking uh, steroids leading up to this as well. Obviously, he destroyed her, he killed her, and, and he ruined the lives of everyone who cared about her, her family, etc. He ruined your life. He ruined his own life. He ruined the lives of your families, right? Your family, all military heroes. And so, yeah, in one short burst of violence, that, from what it sounds like, lasted only seconds, not even minutes, he managed to destroy so many people. And then that's where the story gets into a whole different phase, right? And again, 
I'm, I can't walk in your shoes. No one can walk in your shoes. With all the factors that were going on, Dusty, with the fact that you had been now trained, practically indoctrinated into this idea that you must protect this guy and he's going to protect you, you know, that's just in the mix. I just want to put that in there. But besides that, you're in a state, I can imagine, of complete shock and panic. And who could imagine this t- terrible turn of events, as you said? And what a dramatic turn when it goes from what sounds like a beautiful night, a nice connection, to this absolute horror that you're, you've just witnessed as close and personal as you can imagine with somebody that you were supposed to trust and protect and someone else that you would have liked to protect, but you couldn't. He's screaming at you to drive. What, what happened? Yeah, and this is, like you said, this, this is why you're in prison, is because of what you've done afterwards. And if people can't understand your reaction afterwards, the normal person would have jumped out of the vehicle and ran to find the phone or the, you know, the police somewhere uh, or to tell somebody something just terrible has happened. And that might be the case for most people, I don't know. But I think that the way I reacted, it would have been different even if my own brother would have been in Billy Brown's place. I think I would have reacted differently. But the, like you said, too, the, the way I was conditioned and indoctrinated, at 20 years old, I reacted how I reacted. Now, I'm not a criminal. I've never been uh, violent. I certainly have never been violent towards women. And I'm not criminally minded. And so why is it that a 20-year-old thrust in this position, which I should never have been in to begin with, and had to make these types of decisions? And so when I realized that Jennifer is dead and Billy Brown screaming at me, I really didn't know what to do. I was in a, a place in this uh, area. Like I said, I had only been in Virginia Beach for a couple weeks, maybe three weeks prior. So I just put the car in the drive and I took off drive and I didn't know where I was going. I didn't even know how to barely get out of the uh, Virginia Beach area until I ended up, in fact, Billy Brown, when I started driving, he said, now turn left here, turn right there. And I end up on 64. And on 64, I'm familiar with that highway. And so I just started traveling west on 64. And I didn't know where I was going. And I just kept driving and driving. And so I started seeing a lot of wooded area. And so I pulled off on an exit. Again, I have no idea where I'm at. And I'm just driving. I pull off into another area which seemed more wooded until I get to a, a more secluded area, which is not that far from the interstate. And both of us, myself and Billy, get out of the car. I grab Jennifer's wrist. He grabbed her leg. And we carried her perhaps 30 yards into the woods. And again, I, I was in complete chaotic shock and, and, and just, I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know what else to do. And yeah, I, I understand that people, people look at that moment there and say, you know, that, why would you do that? Why, you know, I wouldn't have done that. But others have not been in my shoes. They don't understand. And perhaps I don't even understand why I reacted that way, other than to say that this is kind of how I was trained to react. They, they didn't say in a situation in which, you know, there's been a crime and it's a civilian who's been hurt, protect your swim buddy. No, of course they didn't say that. However, now, from what I understand, 
when you go through still training today, they do have classes and training that says, look, if this type of scenario happens, you need to consider what you know where you're at, what you're doing, and so forth, and do not protect your swim buddy if he has done something so horrendous, so wrong. And that's in place today because of because of this case. But Dusty, I want to bring up an important point. What is important from a legal perspective to remember is that in Virginia, hiding a body after a murder is a misdemeanor punishable by up to 12 months in jail. And that's not what you got convicted of. That's not what they wanted you for. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But that's a very important thing to remember. In certain states, that's not the case. There's some states where it's treated very differently. In some states, it's treated the same as murder just, you know, hiding the body after the fact. But that's the only thing that you were guilty of. And that's one of the reasons why I've dived into your case and why I'm doing everything I can to help you try to find justice, because it's obviously a terrible miscarriage of justice, the fact that you're serving time for murder when what you did was wrong, but it's not murder. So now... Going forward, you go back to the base, and this is big news, right? The town is up in arms. Everyone's wondering what happened to this girl, and this must have been driving you crazy, right? Well, I wasn't really aware at the time of the news in the media, but what was driving me crazy is just having witnessed it and, and, and knowing about it and attempting to remain silent about it. It was, uh, it, it put me in a state... Uh, almost like a zombie-like state throughout the next week in which I held this secret and, and witnessed Billy do this terrible, terrible deed. And I had it within, and, and, and I couldn't tell anybody. And so it was uh, it was definitely eating me up on the inside over the course of the, the coming week. And I, we were up north, up in uh, a place called Fort AP Hill, doing additional training. And I wasn't, during the time, I wasn't aware of the news and the media down in Virginia Beach. But it was certainly eating me up on the inside. So your conscience got the best of you, and, you know, you did the right thing after having done the wrong thing and went to the authorities, right? And that's where things get really dicey from everything I've read, where they didn't behave in a straightforward manner when it comes to how they treated you, right? Well, first of all, you know, I did tell the uh, detectives, you know, everything that they asked me. You know, at first I didn't, I denied it. I denied everything. Uh, but it, it came to a point, especially after they had presented me with the fact that Jennifer's family is in absolute, going through a traumatic and grieving experience, and they just want to know what happened. They want to know where their daughter is, et cetera. And it was through this line of, of, of inquiry, questioning that, you know, I, I asked to see my spirit uh, officer, and my spirit officer came in, and we were alone, and I told him everything that happened. And so he said that he was going to attempt to call the JAG officer and to see what we could do as far as legally or something like that. But nonetheless, 15 minutes later, when the detectives come in, I told them everything that they had asked me. And they even asked me if I would help them first draw a map to where Jennifer's body was, which I did, I attempted to do. And then they asked me if I would accompany them to help find Jennifer's body. So, which I did also, and myself, uh, my superior officer, and one of the detectives, we went to the location, and we separated the search through the woods. 
finally deposed uh, her body. At that point, I went back to the base. They had presented Billy Brown with the map that I had drawn. He said, look, your buddy completely just rolled on you. He told us everything. You're going down. You're probably going to get the death penalty, whatever else. And so it's at that point that he began with these stories about how I had something to do with it. He later said that if he was going down, he's going to take me with him. And so he made up a story saying that we were both involved. Yeah, I mean, he was obviously furious because he believed that you, who was supposed to be his protector, had betrayed him. He's going to do what he can to bring you down with him because in his twisted way of thinking, you should have covered up this murder and protected him. And so you did what you thought was right, albeit after the fact, and the consequences started to become very real. Now, from what I've read, Dusty, the detectives made certain promises to you, right? That if you helped them, you were going to be kind of okay, right? Yeah, they, they, you know, they did say that. But after telling my superior officer what had happened, and he spoke to the detectives as well, and uh, together they said, look, just, just answer their questions. It'll be all right. And I said, are you sure? You know, and I kind of took it as a direct order from my superior officer. I said, are you sure that's what I should do? And he said, yes. Just answer the question, it'll be all right. I said, okay. No, they didn't come to me and say anything like, well, for your testimony, we'll allow some kind of agreement or something like that. No, they never actually came to me and said that. And, of course, being very ignorant of the criminal justice system, you know, I didn't know that I would even need a lawyer or that that I should um, remain silent about certain things or what have you. But, you know, I willingly asked them to uh, search my vehicle, Again, I, I answered their questions truthfully, and I thought that maybe what this would lead to was, at some point, me on a witness stand explaining, as Billy Brown is being charged with her murder, that I would be explaining exactly how things happened. Maybe I was naive, but I assumed that's how things would work. I certainly didn't assume that they were going to charge me after speaking with Billy Brown and him pointing the finger at myself. I certainly didn't think that I was going to be charged with And this is an important point, Dusty, right? Because the police spent 48 hours examining your car, right? So they they turned that thing upside down. And yet they never used any of the evidence from the car at trial because it wasn't going to be favorable to them. And in fact, by not presenting the evidence at trial, they didn't have to turn it over to the defense when in fact, if they had, it would have been definitely in your favor because of the fact that everything you were saying makes true that the physics of it just don't add up some of the things that they said it doesn't make sense Anyone who knows me knows I wear glasses all the time. It's like a part of my face. And the thing is, it's so annoying going to a store and trying glasses on and going through that whole process. Warby Parker has solved the problem. I just participated in the home try-on program, and here's what happened. They sent me the glasses. I tried them on in my office, five different pairs. I showed them to my friends. I, you know, looking at other people, what do you think, this, that, the other thing. I look in the mirror. I picked the one that suited me the best, and then I sent back the other four. And here's the thing. The glasses, you're not going to believe this. They start at $95, including prescription lenses. I mean, that's a small fraction of what I'm used to paying. 
and the lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings, which is super important to me for obvious reasons. Anyway, the free home try-on program works like this. You order five pairs of glasses and you try them on absolutely free for five days. You can show anyone and then there's no obligation to buy. The shipping is free. It includes a prepaid return shipping label. So head to warbyparker.com slash conviction to take the quiz that comes before and then order your free home try-on. And now, introducing Scout by Warby Parker. And Scout is for you people, for everyone that wears contact lenses. And here's the thing. They're comfortable, they're breathable, and they're affordable. They're daily contact lenses. They're made from a super moist material that resists drying for lasting hydration and comfort. It's everything you want from a contact lens. Order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5. Unreal. And then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more. Go to warbyparker.com slash conviction. That's warbyparker.com slash conviction. Try it today. Is there something that is interfering with your happiness or preventing you from achieving your goals? If so, then BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. BetterHelp offers licensed professional counselors who are specialists in issues including depression, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, trauma, and more. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. And remember, anything you share is confidential. Now you can get help on your own schedule at your own pace and your own time. You can schedule secure video or phone sessions and chat, text with your therapist. If you're not happy with your counselor also, remember this, you can request a new one at any time at no additional charge. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. And for Wrongful Conviction listeners, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code WRONGFUL. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash wrongful. That's betterhelp.com slash wrongful. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor that you'll love. Betterhelp.com slash wrongful. To add insult to injury, and in a, in a terrible, call it a coincidence, the year that you were convicted, 1995, was the same year that Virginia abolished parole, which is shocking to my conscience. In a nation where we believe in second chances and we believe in redemption and we believe in that stuff, the idea that if you were so misfortunate as to be convicted in Virginia 1995 or later, you are not eligible for parole. I wouldn't even know what parole meant. I wasn't aware, you know, that they had just abolished parole in Virginia. I don't think I would have would have cared at the time. I wasn't so, I guess, concerned about the sentence I was given. I was concerned about the fact that I was convicted of two charges that I did not commit. Whether they gave me 10 years or uh, 100 years, I was convicted of something I didn't commit. And that's, that was the travesty. It's, it's uh, I, I, can't, um, I can't really imagine how that could make sense in a society like ours, but it, but it is, in fact, a reality, and it's your reality, and it's why now everyone is working so hard to help you get clemency or a pardon or a conditional pardon from the governor because of the fact that that is the only recourse left. Another thing that's of sort of a unique and, to me, uh, troubling concept is the idea that you only have really one appeal of actual innocence in Virginia, right? And that's something I want to get to, Dusty, because first of all, a crazy thing happened in 2002, right? Which is that Billy, he had some sort of an awakening and decided to come clean and tell the truth. We're talking 2002, 15 years ago, right? 
and he recanted and admitted that he was the sole murderer. And I think people are listening now and going, well, wait a minute, if that happened, why is Dusty still in prison? Can you explain that scenario? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can explain it. Yeah, as he's uh, serving his time in some other prison, I guess some guys had approached him and got him to uh, get into Christianity. And this allowed him to finally relieve this burden that he's been holding for all these years and to confess. And so that happened again in the early 2000s. And here it is, 15 years later, and I'm still sitting here. Still sitting here after, after he's come clean. After he's finally said, yeah, everything that Dusty has said, that's what happened. And the judge ruled that he's credible in that confession. So there was no mechanism until more recently of even getting back into court with such new evidence. But there was at the time, uh, later in 2006, 2007, and so we filed a writ of actual innocence to the appeals court, which ended with, well, the appeals court initially overturned my conviction. They did convict me of the misdemeanor accessory after the fact of the felony, which indeed I am guilty of. And like you said earlier, that was a, a, a maximum sentence of 12 months in jail. When they made this ruling and they dropped my charges, this is 2008, 2009, I was expecting to be home within a matter of days or weeks. This is what makes me insane. And I think anybody listening is like, wait, wait, wait. So your conviction was vacated, right? And then that means to a layman who's not intimately familiar with the law or criminal proceedings, when your conviction is vacated, you have every reason to believe you're going to go home, right? They've actually come out and said, okay, we are now acknowledging there is no physical evidence connecting you to this. None of this stuff adds up, right? Not to the murder. Like you said, you were guilty of the accessory after the fact. And now you have the actual killer confessing in court under oath, Sounds like a winner, right? You're going home, except for then the, the state decided to put its foot back on your neck, so to speak, right? And then what happened? Yeah, so the police uh, vacated my, my conviction, and I was expected to be home within a matter of days. The uh, acting attorney general came forward and said that he wanted to appeal this decision. And so they appealed it, and it went back through the appellate court and then on into the, uh, later into the Supreme Court of Virginia. And under a new theory that one of the judges of the appellate court created, and the threat of actual innocence is so demanding, as they say, that the, the evidence has to be just as substantial as DNA evidence, which, unfortunately, there's no DNA evidence in my case. But so one of the judges says, well, although he didn't have anything to do with the murder, and this has been decided by the judges, he didn't have anything to do with the murder, and he didn't restrain the victim. This judge says, well, perhaps a, a jury could believe that when Dusty walked out of the bar to the parking lot, to his car, that, that a jury could believe that that was an abduction by deception. And if a jury believed that, and then Jennifer was later killed, regardless of how or who killed her, that I would still be guilty. A jury could still find me guilty of both the abduction and the murder. So they created a new theory in my face. There's just not only is it asinine, but it was never presented before a, a jury. And there's no jury in the world that would believe this idea, uh, especially with all the additional evidence. So under that, because of that, and it's all the semantics of this word restraint, and that's what it comes down to. I'm, I'm still in prison because
because of the semantics of the word restraint, and it's unbelievable. So they overturn my release, and they reinstate my conviction. And here it is, seven years later, and I'm still sitting here for crimes I did not commit. So they're basically trying to say that they're going back in time to 1995. They're going back in time to 1995 and trying to come up with a, a theory that could actually read your mind, right? They're going back in a time machine and reading your mind and saying, well, this may have been, could have been, would have been something that he might have been thinking of doing. There's no evidence to prove it. How could anybody, I don't know, it makes me nuts. It, it's such a bizarre it's such a bizarre thing for a court or a judge to say, as, as far as I'm concerned. I think that the, the legislators recognized that after my case, and they said, you know, this rid of actual innocence is obviously entirely too restrictive and uh, too open for interpretation or whatever. And so they've, since I went through this rid of actual innocence, now they've changed the law, the wording of the rid of actual innocence. Instead of saying, could any juror find guilt with this evidence now, it's more specific, and it may sound simplistic, but it's more specific saying, would a rational juror still find guilt with this new evidence and the new wording, which I can't go back into the rid of accidents because it's a one-shot deal. And so I'm left hung out to dry on this, on this whole thing. Well, hopefully not for too long because you have a lot of really great people on your side now, and you have a, a governor who cares about these issues and who has shown in actions that he believes in justice, that he believes in fairness, and that he has the courage to do something about these things. From my perspective, he does seem like a very fair man, and I do have hope. I do think that he will look at my case, and I know, and I'm very confident that if he does, if he just looks at my case, that he'll realize that I'm not supposed to be here. I do have that tremendous hope that he will take action in my case. Well, Dusty, I can tell you that I think that there's a lot of reason to have have hope in this current administration that we have there because of the fact that you do have such a, a groundswell of support. And not only that, because of what you've done, the remarkable record of accomplishment that you've had on the inside. And I want to talk about that. I know that you know, you're finding hope in, in a hopeless place, but I want to paint a picture for the audience of just how grim it is to be in the situation you're in, and then also what you've managed to make out of that experience. Well, you know, um, I've got a quote from a guy who knows suffering, and a couple things have, have kept me, I don't know, moving forward and, and as positive as I can be. One is the supporters that I do have, not just my family, but others, you know, total strangers who have reached out, and it gives me a lot of hope, and it gives me a lot of strength to endure this what I'm going through in this environment, and it is terrible. It's absolutely terrible. But this quote, one of my favorite quotes, it says that everything can be taken from a man but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, and that is to choose one's own attitude in any set of circumstances, choose one's own way. That's a man named Victor Frankl. And, you know, I've, I've, I guess I've taken on this, this attitude, you know, I, that which allowed me to persevere through bug training, to the seal training. I reach for this almost on a daily basis. You know, I put my feet on the ground and I say, I have to I have to continue on today and I have to push forward and I can't allow this environment to get the best of me. And I want to transcend 
in spite of where I'm at. And so I've looked to uh, try to do things to try to help out not only the people around me in my environment. I've, for years, I've helped guys who have struggled with uh, drug addiction or you know criminal thinking. And I've just kind of made it a, just a part of my own, my own character to try to help guys out and to move past and transcend some of these things in which they've been stuck in. And not only that, I proposed a uh, dog training program at the last institution that I was at. Uh, it was Luckily, it was approved, and we had the dogs come in. And for, for about three years, I was able to be a dog trainer. And I had uh, studied and read up and, and learned so much about training dogs. And I really enjoyed that. And how does that training program work, Dusty? The, the, the dogs, are they rescue dogs? And what happens to them after they're trained? Right, so these are absolutely rescue dogs. These were abandoned. We worked with a shelter out of uh, Ashland, Virginia called Bark, B-A-R-K, and that's the Bandit Adoption and Rescue Canines, a really great organization. And they would bring us six dogs at a time, and we would have them for three months, and we had a total of uh, 12 dog trainers, two free dogs. And we would train the dogs, these dogs that were abandoned, and you never know what their history was. They could have been maybe uh, beaten or however, but they were rescued. And we were given the tools to help train these dogs. And then afterwards, they were adopted. And we had an adoption rate of some 90-something percent coming out of there. And we trained them in basic canine obedience. It was a really, really great, really positive program. And from there, I had gotten into, me and another guy, we had been talking about different ideas concerning the judicial system. And we come across this idea of restorative justice. And after we had studied on it, and we would gotten in contact with some restorative justice practitioners. We decided that with our knowledge of this environment in the prison, and we knew what was lacking in this environment, we knew some of the things that could help in the rehabilitation of these fellow uh, inmates, we constructed a restorative justice program. We're still in the process of kind of fleshing out some of the more detailed aspects of the curriculum, but this is what my passion has been into for the past few years. I've really been concentrating my efforts into this program. And we have some people, some restorative justice practitioners from universities and other organizations who really, uh, really like what we have uh, created. And they want to uh, help us out a little bit. Well, you know, it's, you know what it sounds like to me? It sounds like you're doing more good, like I said, from this hopeless place than most people on the outside can ever even dream of doing. And that's, you know, that's to your credit, obviously. And it's another reason why... It makes sense for you to be granted your freedom after all these years. And if you even allow your mind to go there, what do you want to do? What's your plan? Well, as you hit upon, do I even want to go there? I have been reluctant, especially after seven years ago when I was expecting to get out. And I was denied that. That was a very crushing blow. And it was, you know, difficult to endure. But... Yeah, of course I do allow myself to, to, to think about once I'm out of here. Although I don't dwell upon it because I just, I, I don't know, I, I, I just I can't go there for so much. But the more I've gotten into uh, restorative justice, the more I think it's an extremely beneficial philosophy and, and set of practices for and to kind of complement our criminal justice system. And so I really want to pursue that direction. And I think that I could, I could help out. I think I have a lot of uh, tools or, or skills, I guess, uh, knowledge from being in here for the last 22, 
plus years and observing things from the inside, I feel like I have a great perspective to be able to help out in the uh, restorative justice field. That sounds like a great scenario to me and will have benefits to society across the board. In the fall of 2008, a sleepy Seattle suburb was shocked by a crime that no one could have expected. A local football star planned a daring bank robbery complete with decoys, disguises, and an outlandish getaway plan. He drew the whole thing up just like a game-winning play on the field and almost got away with it. The sneak follows a twisting story of a once great athlete who committed that crime and how the robbery forever changed the small town where it occurred. Be sure to subscribe to The Sneak on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening right now. I don't know if you're able to talk about it, but it really struck me earlier when you told me that the prison or, the, or your pod is on lockdown. What does that mean? Well, so where I'm at now, we've been on lockdown for the last two weeks, which means we're confined to our concrete box, our cell. And we're coming out every 72 hours to take a shower. They bring the food to our door. And I say our door because uh, I have a cell partner every cell is people per cell and this is how I've been living for the last two weeks but moreover it's pretty much how I've been living for the last 22 years but when we're not on lockdown you know I do have a, a modicum of freedoms if you will you know every once in a while I can get outside and, and take fresh air and, and work out I've enrolled into a horticulture class and learn about uh, horticulture I can actually have my fingers in the soil and be able to have the opportunity to plant some uh, seeds and And the last question about the prison experience, what is an average day like when you're not on lockdown? You, you wake up at five or something? How, does, how do you get through the day? <laughs> yeah, so they have a, what they call count procedures in which they have to come through and literally count every individual while they're locked in their cell about four times or so every day, spread out throughout the day. And during that time, you have to be standing up and your lights have to be on so they can see that you're alive and, and well, and, and that starts certainly before 6 o'clock in the morning. So for the last 22 years, I've been up at 5.45, about that time, uh, and standing on my feet with the lights on, the fluorescent lights, every every morning. And that's, that's one of the counts, and you know, like I said, that goes throughout the day, and that kind of segments the day, that and the feeding, the channel or feeding schedule, so the, uh, the breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and these kind of condition you and condition one into the, uh, the segments of the day. And so there's a period in the morning after breakfast in which, if we're lucky, we might get outside to recreation. And recreation consists of a yard that has a track. I usually go jogging. If I'm able to, I'll, I'll go into the weightlifting area, lift some weights. They have a couple other recreational things. The guys hit around with the, uh, the volleyball or the basketball. Otherwise, there's not a lot of, I don't know, kind of rehabilitative programs. There are a few. You know, I've been through a lot of those things. But for most guys, I think that, you know, this place is more of a warehouse for humans than anything. It's not really designed for, as it's called, correction, necessarily. Although there have been, you know, steps towards that direction. 
positive, hopeful steps in that direction. You know, I think that the governor has made some steps in that direction with the reentry ideas and, and so forth. But, you know, unfortunately, there's largely the prisons are placed at the warehouse humans. So there's only so much a man can do in this environment. And so I do utilize my time studying. You know, I, I spend my money on uh, books and uh, go to the library when I can. Well, Dusty, all I can tell you, again, I know you know about it, but I hope you can feel it. There's a real wave of support for you among so many people who care and who want to see you released and able to get on with your life and put this nightmare behind you. Of course, Lisa Spees has been a huge advocate. I think she's a very strong supporter and a very positive and wonderful person. And I want to turn it over to you. Typically on wrongful conviction, I like to leave the last word open so that you can share any thoughts you have about anything at all with our audience. I'll turn it over to you, Dusty. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned uh, you know, one of my uh, supporters. Lisa, she certainly has been great, especially in the what I understand in the social media field, I guess. And I do have a lot of uh, very strong supporters out here in Virginia who are total strangers, some of whom I've, I've gotten to know personally, and they're just such great people. And I'm, I'm very fortunate to have these people in my corner and, and who have recognized my wrongful conviction. As far as the last word, I'm thankful. I, I really appreciate Mr. Baum for interviewing me. I'm very thankful that increasingly more people know that I uh, have been wrongfully convicted. And I hope that people, you know, maybe reach out and, and talk to somebody. A filmmaker named J.D. Lee has created a film called The Target of Opportunity about my case. And I was able to view it one time a few years ago. And I think it encapsulates my situation pretty, pretty well. And I just hope that people will take some kind of interest and look into my case. And I know that if anybody does, they will see the travesty and the fact that I've been here for over 22 years for something I didn't do. I had such a uh, future in front of in the military. I love the military. I plan to make it a career, perhaps. I want to be in the field teams and want to be a, uh, one of the best field team operators in this country that I could have been. Uh, and my world was turned upside down in the lives of so many people over one act by this guy. So many people have been destroyed and ruined. Jennifer Evans' family, my family, at our city, the Billy Brown family, so many others affected. But again, I just thank you. I, I really appreciate the opportunity to get back to the interview. So, Dusty, I want to repeat that the name of the film is... Uh, the name of the film is Target of Opportunity. Target of Opportunity is the film. I've watched it. I hope other people that are listening now will, will watch it too. And Dusty, I'm sure people are listening, they want to know how can they get involved. What would you advise? Right. You know, unfortunately, I'm, I'm, I am largely isolated. You know, I have no internet access. I've never been on the internet. I've never even used a cell phone. However, I think that people could uh, maybe visit. Uh, I know that my supporters have created a website, thefreedusty.org, and... I do know, too, that there is a Twitter and Instagram account under my name, uh, Free Dusty Turner, I think. And I know that, at the very least, reaching out there, that my supporters would, uh, I'm sure, direct folks in 
to the best way that they might be able to help. I know that writing to the governor, Governor Terry McAuliffe in Virginia directly, may help out. Other, other than that, I'm really not sure what else to, to say about it. Okay, so once again, that's Free Dusty Turner is the Instagram and the Twitter. The movie is Target of Opportunity. Please learn more about this case and get involved. Follow Dusty on social media, and there'll be more information there. You can learn how to how to help, and now is the time to do it because we're really in the home stretch of this uh, this effort to free Dusty Turner. You have one minute remaining. Dusty, all I can say is hang in there. We're we're coming to get you. Thank you, Dusty, for, for being on the show, and uh, I'll look forward to, to seeing you on the outside, hopefully sometime very soon. You've been listening to a very special episode of Wrongful Conviction Behind Bars with Dusty Turner. Dusty, thanks again. Thank you, sir. Thank you for using GTL. Don't forget to give us a fantastic review wherever you get your podcast. It really helps. And you know, I'm a proud donor to The Innocence Project, and I really hope you'll join me in supporting this very important cause and in so doing, helping to prevent future wrongful convictions. It's easy. Go to innocenceproject.org to learn how to donate and get involved. I want to thank our amazing producers, engineers, and editors, Connor Hall and Kevin Wardis. The music in the show is by three-time Oscar-nominated composer, Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram, at Wrongful Conviction, and on Facebook, at Wrongful Conviction Podcast. Wrongful Conviction with Jason Flom is a production of Lava for Good Podcasts in association with Signal Company Number 1 and PRX. I'm excited to tell you about a new serialized podcast called American Jihadi. If you're into investigative journalism, if you're a news junkie, or if you love great nonfiction storytelling, it's a must listen. American Jihadi tells the incredible true story of the unbelievable relationship between journalist Christoph Putzel and Omar Hamami. Throughout the eight-episode series, Christoph recounts his investigation into the life of Omar, an American-born U.S. citizen who became leader of the Somali Islamist militant group Al-Shabaab, landing him on the list of the FBI's most wanted terrorists. From Omar's hometown in Alabama to war-torn Somalia, Christoph seeks to get answers. Why would a Southern Baptist turn to terrorism? And how close should a journalist get to his source? Listen to American Jihadi, out now on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.